Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, George the Third, the review. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factory, viewing all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Um, but this is the second half of George III. Yes. First half, last time we did his biography, because there was so much stuff that happened in such a long reign that we couldn't do that and review him in one episode. Yeah. So there's more detail and background context if you want that in our previous episode, but this week we are actually going to review him. Yeah, so we're going to do all the factors. So, a quick recap as to who George III was and the events. Yeah, he was king. Yeah. He was king, having been born in 1738, the son of Prince Frederick, because his father died before George II. Yes. So that's that's skipped a generation. And his mother being Augusta of Saxe-Gotha. And he became king in 1760 when he was just 22 years old. Mm. And he is the third great-grandfather of Elizabeth II. It's really really close. Very, very close. We recall in the 1760s when he came to power, he dismissed Pitt the Elder and Newcastle, had successive weak governments where he was interfering, trying to increase the power of the crown, but all the ministries were struggling. But then he found Lord North, who was his man, who could control Parliament. Unfortunately, he couldn't control America. We had numerous acts which Americans didn't like, the stamp tax, coercive measures, things like this, increasing tensions. And then in 1776, America declared its independence... There was a revolution, a war, which, after the 1781 American victory at Yorktown, was pretty much all over. In the 1780s, he actually contemplated abdication after that, partly through losing America and partly through his enemy, uh, Charles James Fox, forming a coalition with the Duke of Portland. And he was very unhappy about this government, which was seeking to strip powers back from him. But mm. he found a new man in Pitt the Younger, mm. who, at just 24 years old, became the youngest ever Prime Minister. That's incredible. He brings political stability, controls the Commons for about 20 years, George is able to take a bit of a back seat, which is good, because in 1788-89 he suffers his first major attack, probably of porphyria, yeah. which we understand wrongly as madness, mm-hmm. affected his nervous system, so he was incapacitated. Thankfully, George recovers, just in time for the French Revolution in 1789. Hey. Everyone's happy about it at first, thinks it's constitutional improvement, but once Louis XVI of France gets executed and Robespierre as the reign of terror, Europe ends up at war. And then, as we said, Napoleon came to power, defeated all these European alliances, but his failed invasion of Russia in 1812 led to his abdication. But then he came back in 1815, yeah. only to be defeated one last time at the Battle of Waterloo. Yes. But, of course, George III had no idea about this, because from 1811 to 1820, he had a recurrence of his mental health issues with Porphyria, and he spent his last nine years locked up at Windsor Castle... Yeah, totally out of his wits, dying in 1820 at 81 years old. Hmm. 81 though, for 22 to 80, 24 to 81, that's hmm. that's got to be one of the highest. Isn't it? We'll Certainly, find out. we will find yeah. out. So that very very quickly was the life and reign of George III. See you next week. Yes, <laughs> Battleiness. We're going to go into more detail with this than we usually do because we've got this episode split. Got more time. And because we're now in the period at which the monarch is in many ways not directly involved a lot of the time, we're going to spend a lot of time not mentioning George III at all, certainly for battliness. 
Oh, right. Okay. So because this he's is not at the front. He no, doesn't fight at all. New new approach, isn't it? So new this approach. is more sort of general watch. This is more general what's going on. So we'll give him credit for good stuff, we'll give him credit for bad stuff, and if we can find anything in which we can say this was his role... Then we'll include it, yeah. We'll certainly do that. So, first of all, the good stuff. Mm-hmm. We're going to focus initially on the ultimate victory against the French in the French Revolutionary and then ultimately Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. And we're going to look at two particular men... I'm excited. Nelson and Wellington. Oh, yes. <clears throat> so, first of all, Admiral Lord Nelson. And incredibly, for Britain's greatest naval hero, he suffered from seasickness. No, he didn't. He did. No, he didn't. <laughs> was it because he only had one leg, and so it was a bit unbalanced? So he was seasick on land, but then he on sea. He he was two like, legs. Oh, did he? One arm. One arm. Oh, I'm thinking of a pirate. <laughs> yes, for that. <laughs> Uh, he joined HMS uh, Raisonable at the uh, age of 13, began officer training in 1771, first saw battle in 1775, and was given his first command in the American Revolution. Oh, right. Although he did um, twice within quite a fairly short space of time whilst in the Americas catch malaria. Ooh, nasty. Then we have the French Revolutionary Wars, mm-hmm. in which he's starting to make his name. Corsica in 1793, he lost the sight in his right eye while storming the town of Calvi. So it was damaged by debris after an explosion. Oh, yeah. So he, he didn't actually lose the eye, and I think he could still make out shadows and outlines, but basically he lost the vision. Yeah, he's rapidly becoming half the man he used to be. Yeah, <laughs> well, one yes. arm, one eye. <laughs> he's still got two arms. He's got two, oh, right, okay. two arms and one eye. And the legs are always intact. The legs are fine. Okay. 1797, at Santa Cruz de Tenerife, he was hit in his right arm by a musket ball whilst uh, leading another assault. Ooh. Most of his right arm was then amputated. Yeah. Which was a very unpleasant experience at the time, of course, yeah. with no painkillers or anything like yeah. that. Nevertheless, within half an hour, he was issuing orders to his men and his officers. Oh, crumbs. And he later apologised for the brevity of his letters due to the fact that being right-handed, it was a bit of an inconvenience having to yeah, write these things <laughs> left-handed. Oh, my goodness. And he comes back for, arguably, military terms, his greatest victory at the Battle of the Nile. Oh, yeah, go on, yeah. Background to this, Napoleon... Just before he became first consul and everything, mm. so he wasn't quite in charge of France yet, but he's leading the military strategy. He wanted to occupy Egypt because that would disrupt Britain's links to India, mm. which so was a big uh, loss for Britain in terms of economy and commerce and all this sort of thing. Nelson was sent to intercept the French fleet before he got there. Unfortunately, he was going helter-skelter to get there as quickly mm. as he could and didn't realise that the French fleet was actually going quite slowly. And so during the night, the British actually overtook the French without realising it. Oh, right. So uh, the British got to Alexandria and thought, oh, they're not here. Came back to look for them. Meanwhile, Napoleon, having realised that he just narrowly avoided being completely taken out by a superior naval force, landed and occupied Alexandria. So Napoleon occupies Alexandria, but his fleet is anchored in um, Abukir Bay, which is Mm. the harbour, which isn't very well defended. Uh, so they were hoping that the British wouldn't find them, but Nelson does find them. Mm. So he approaches. They have brutal, brutal battle. The French were taken by surprise a bit because it was quite a le- it was sort of late evening when he attacked, and they didn't think he'd risk a nighttime attack. Mm. But he does. They have uh, a ceasefire at ten o'clock at night after the French flagship, the Orient, caught fire and then exploded. How do you communicate ceasefire with flags? I suppose, but yeah. They could, very complicated communication yeah. with flags. They could spell out you know, words and sentences. Stop, and stop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that really Hold hurts, yeah. But ultimately, it's a terrible defeat for the French. They lose two frigates and two ships of the line, which is sort of the proper mm. big ships. Another nine get captured. Between two and 5,000 French uh, sailors killed. 
whilst the British only lose 218 dead and 677 wounded. It's a Worst massive, thing, massive yeah, victory. Nelson's life has his own bit of scandal in the form of Emma Hamilton. Yes. She's a, an actress, a dancer, very witty, intelligent, very, very beautiful, but married to a man called Sir William Hamilton. And Nelson, in 1787, married a woman called uh, Fanny Nisbet, met Emma in 1793 for the first time, but uh, the romance really developed from 1798. Right. But the weird thing was that William knew all about this, tolerated the affair, and they actually lived together from 1800, all three, right. the three of them. Because he, he, he was Nelson, he couldn't touch He was him. Nelson, they liked, they had strong admiration for each other. Yeah, same tastes. Yes, same tastes in women. And Nelson and Emma Hamilton are... Turned a blind eye. That's terrible. Oh, sorry, yes. That's terrible. <laughs> so, they're a celebrity couple, Nelson and Emma Hamilton. Yeah. Sort of the back into their day, yeah. However, there's bigger things to come for Nelson. The Battle of Trafalgar. Yeah, this is his moment, really, isn't it? This is his moment. The background to this, 1804, Napoleon had been planning to invade Britain. Mm. He got an invasion force of about 100,000 men, 2,000 transports waiting in Bologna. Mm. Uh, Nelson was aiming to stop a man called Villeneuve reaching the invasion force. Initially, Nelson chases Villeneuve to the West Indies mm. and then back again. He doesn't quite manage to catch him. Uh, but then Villeneuve goes off for Cadiz, so Nelson is going to go as well. Napoleon actually abandoned the invasion plans before Trafalgar because Australia, Austria and Russia rejoined the war in right. Europe, which meant that he had to transfer his troops to actually just fight on the continent. Yeah. So he'd given up on invading Britain, but nevertheless he still needed the naval attack to go on. Yeah. And Villeneuve, knowing uh, Nelson's reputation, was a little bit reluctant, and he was just kind of hiding in Cadiz and yeah. <laughs> not really <laughs> wanting to play. So Napoleon sent someone to take over from Villeneuve. Yeah. Villeneuve heard about this, so he sent the fleet out before the guy could come along to replace him. <laughs> Clever. And this, of course, meant that Nelson had his chance for a battle. Yeah. And so on the 21st of October, 1805, we have the Battle of Trafalgar. In terms of tactics, as ever, Nelson was unorthodox. He planned to sort of cut the French in three, so they kind of approach in two columns. Mm -hmm. And then he'd split up the French, force their flagship into battle, which would disrupt communications, and force all the other ships into battle so he'd be able to inflict the maximum damage. Mm. I've seen somewhere um, that the plans for Trafalgar were found. They were just sketched on the back of like a, a piece of paper, but nothing all sort of mm. official. It's just a, some a few little lines that show mm. his plans for the attack. It's amazing. Mm. Yeah. As Nelson said, ultimately, his approach could be defined as no captain can do very wrong if he places his ship alongside that of the enemy. Right. So his tactic is basically just get straight in there and just Let's have fight it out. It out. Yeah. So he just trusted that his ships were better. Better, because they were less numerous. The French and Spanish um, yeah. ships, there were were about 41 in total. Right. Whereas Britain had 33. Right. So they had more ships, but Nelson knew that his were better. Nelson, before the battle, um, ordered a signal to be given out to his whole fleet, as we said, with all those flags that yeah. they could do messages, which would say, England confides that every man will do his duty. They changed it um, because the word expects would only require one flag, whereas confined to be a bit more complicated. Oh, right. So instead it became England expects that every man will do his duty, which is now one of those phrases yeah. that kind of resonates. Yeah. Yeah. So it was given. Battle commenced. Again, heavy fighting, huge melees of all these ships. Oh, I'd love massive to see explosions that. and smoke. It would have been very confusing a lot of the mm. time, I imagine. Uh, but it is, of course great naval victory for Britain, the most famous in British history. Franco-Spanish uh, ships, 21 captured, one destroyed. Britain didn't lose any ships, 
458 dead and about Didn't lose any ships 1, compared to 21. Wounded. Not in the battle. Unfortunately, in the aftermath, only 11 French ships escaped, and only five of those are seaworthy. But storm, there was a massive storm just after the battle. It really damaged a lot of the British ships, so they're only able to retain four of the captured French ships. Right. But nevertheless, this means that Napoleon you know, will not be able to invade anymore. Britain has got mastery of the seas. Yeah. Sadly, of course... That is it for Nelson, because mm. he does not survive the Battle of Trafalgar. No. He was positioned on the deck of his ship, the HMS Victory. Uh, the actual, the captain of the ship, was uh, Hardy, suggested that he remove the decorations on his coat so that sharpshooters wouldn't be able to recognise him. Um, but he didn't bother with that. And he was hit by a marksman. The bullet entered his left shoulder and got lodged in his back. And he knew that that was it. Mm. He was done for. Taken down below... Hardy came to see Nelson. The doctor, Beatty, recorded that Nelson said, Kiss me, Hardy. Is it kiss me or... Ki- oh, I heard that it was kiss me. It was fake well, or something. yeah, this is the thing. So Hardy did kiss him, because he yeah. thought he said kiss me. But he may have said kiss me, Hardy, which is the same means fate, Hardy, i.e. this was fate. It was mm. going to happen. Maybe that he said promise me, Hardy, because he'd just before asked him to make sure that he looked after Lady Hamilton. Right. Either way, they all work. They all work, and he did get a kiss. Mm. And happy endings. And then he died uh, three hours after his first shot. So, Nelson, the great hero, died. Um, usually, when sailors die, well, they just would... Put them overboard. Put them overboard. Yeah. Obviously, Nelson's a, a different case. So they put him in a cask of brandy, bringing him home. Why not? And then, uh, <laughs> and then after Gibraltar, he came back in a lead-lined coffin. Apparently, he didn't really do the trick of preserving oh, him. Right. He wasn't very recognisable. Mm when he got back. But there's national mourning at mm. Nelson's death. Probably com- probably comparable with that of Diana. Really? In our period. Because you think, he is the man that has been protecting yeah, Britain true. from invasion. Like Churchill, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, a little fact I've heard yeah. about uh, one of the reasons why he wasn't terribly well preserved. Because the sailors kept nicking the brandy. <laughs> so there's an expression to tap Admiral Nelson or something was to uh, they'd tap the barrel and mm. get some of the brandy out so that, well, there wasn't quite enough and he probably was a floating like, half <laughs> in it the Times said we do not know whether we should mourn or rejoice the country has gained the most splendid and decisive victory that has ever graced the naval annals of England but it has been dearly purchased mm. yeah. his funeral he lay in state at the painted hall at Greenwich the future George IV, the future Prince Regent, escorted the funeral barge. He wanted to be the chief mourner at the funeral, but yeah. he was denied because that was against royal protocol. Yeah. And for his funeral, there was a procession of 32 admirals, 100 captains and 10,000 soldiers who took him from the Admiralty to St Paul's, where about 7,000 people were in the congregation there. Wow. And he was ultimately interred in a sarcophagus originally built for Cardinal Wolsey. Henry VIII's Really? So what happened to his? Oh, because he did he meet a sticky end? Well, he died just before he got a sticky end, but that meant he didn't get to be buried in his fancy sarcophagus. Mm. Does that mean it's got a picture of Wolsey on the outside? I presume they would have changed that. They just chopped the legs off and said it was Nelson. (laughs) (laughs) So, that is Nelson and the Navy. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, not much mention of George, but it's under his reign, so that's massive points. Next up, the army. Mm. And for this, we turn to Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington. Okay. He is actually from an Anglo-Irish family in Kildare, born in Dublin, so he is technically... That's the pale, isn't it? uh... Of Ireland, yes. But he didn't consider himself Irish. And when Mm. asked about it once, he responded that being born in a barn does not make someone a horse. 
Ah, now that, yeah, that expression is now used by um, racists everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, he's not starting well. Um, in, well, indeed, he showed very little promise in his early life. His mother was worried, saying, what am I going to do with my Arthur? Really? However, he joins the army and he sort of finds his calling yeah. and improves markedly. He really makes his name initially in India, sort of 1797 to 1805, fought successfully in various campaigns, extending the role of the East India Company. Mm. But he's got bigger things to deal with. Mm. Napoleon. Yeah. First Small off, thing. Well, indeed. First off, the Peninsula Wars. This is in Spain and Portugal, because France invades Spain and Portugal and make Napoleon's brother Joseph the King of Spain. Yeah. Britain decides we've got to do something about this. The man initially sent to deal with it, Sir John Moore, gets killed at the Battle of Corona in 1809. So Wellington is the man put in charge. Mm -hmm. He suggests they should use Portugal as a base. It's got mountainous frontiers. Lisbon is somewhere they can defend. Yeah. Sure enough, he goes in and they secure Portugal. Then they try and get Spain back as well. 1809 to 11, they're trying to stir peasant nationalism against France. So it's sort of guerrilla warfare that Mm. Britain is kind of trying to sponsor as well as British troops being there as well. They get into Spain, but there's a succession of counterattacks on both sides as they're forced to retreat. France try and get into Portugal, and then it comes back again. Mm. There's quite a long slog right. going on down there. But finally, um, 1812, capture some key fortresses, such as Badajoz, um, rout the French at Salamanca, and then liberate Madrid. Right. Okay. 1813, defeat Joseph at Vitoria, and Spain is effectively freed. So this is good, but he's not fighting Napoleon here, he's fighting the brother. Which is probably just as well. If yeah. he'd committed all his troops to Spain and Portugal, it would have been a different matter. Yeah. Then, as we said, Napoleon had invaded Russia. It had all gone wrong for him, and he abdicated, went off to Elba. Mm. Then he came back, and the Allies think, right, we need to deal with him once and for all. Mm. Which takes us to the Battle of Waterloo. Excellent. This is in 1815. Um, so... We've got Britain and Prussia as the main two allies, the big two armies. Wellington heading the British, Blücher, the sort of 70-year-old veteran of the Seven Years' War, mm. heading the Prussians. So, initially things don't start very well. Napoleon defeats the Prussians at Ligny, and then there's a sort of stalemate with Britain at uh, Quatremas. And this means we've got the British and the Prussians split, and Napoleon thinks, I can take out Britain, then I can take out Prussia, and then I pretty much won. So, the, I mean, there's an arrogance in this assumption, but the British, given their reputation on the seas, would have a pretty good reputation on as an army, but Napoleon is is the dominant force still. They... Napoleon is the military genius of the right, okay. period, and yeah. he keeps managing to raise these huge armies. Um, but in terms of the forces at this point, there are about 72,000 French troops, 68,000 British and 50,000 Prussians. Right. But at Waterloo, initially... It's just the British. Mm. So there are more French than British. Mm. So he's got every reason to think that he's got a good chance of yeah, winning. Yeah, fair enough. Wellington, um, the morning the 8th of June in 1815, is writing from 2 o'clock in the morning until dawn, sending letters off all over the place. In particular, he's writing to Blucher saying, please come. <laughs> really good if you could help out here. Yeah, you're in a bit of a fix. But it's going to be a while before the Prussians get there, so mm. Britain has got to hold out. Yeah. And there is hard, hard fighting, particularly around a small town of Hougoumont throughout the day. Heavy casualties in sort of cavalry charges on both sides, and ultimately Britain is taking a pounding from these French advances. They're holding out, but ultimately Wellington knows that his reserves have just all been sort of pushed in, so he's kind of getting to the point where there's not really anything left behind him right. to just bring in. So it's, it's either all down the battlefield or run. Yeah. 
Um, artillery shot at one point narrowly misses Wellington mm. and hits his uh, deputy officer Uxbridge in the knee. Ooh. To which uh, Uxbridge says, By God, sir, I've lost my leg. <laughs> and Wellington <laughs> responds, By God, sir, so you have. <laughs> it's all looking a bit dodgy, but thankfully, about half past four in the afternoon, the Prussians turn up. Hey. And this proves the turning point. Imperial Guard is broken in one sort of final... This is like Imperial Guard being his real elite troops right. being there from the off. Mm. They get a long way, but ultimately they're broken through heavy fire. Wellington sees the opportunity, stands up in Copenhagen stirrups, Copenhagen being his horse, right. waves his hat and gives a signal to advance. Yeah. And they do advance, and finally the French are forced into a retreat. Excellent. And that sort of tenish of Blücher and Wellington meet, embrace. The battle is over. Brilliant. So... That's another huge one. Huge one. Napoleon has actually been defeated in battle, mm. which is massive. And this does end the Napoleonic Wars. There's no return for Napoleon after this. Mm. It's all over. Another devastating battle. About 25,000 French troops killed. British lose about 3,500 killed, 10,000 wounded. Prussians about 1,000 killed, 4,000 wounded. Wellington apparently was tearful when he was given the casualty list after the battle, and he said, it's quite impossible to think of glory. I always say that next to a battle lost, the greatest misery is a battle gained. Well, that's a good expression. Mm. But, that is victory. Napoleon defeated by sea and by land. Yeah, game over. And we've got these two great figures, Nelson and Wellington. Yeah. The thing is that, although, obviously, it's the same period, Nelson dies 1805, the Peninsula War sort of 1808, so they don't quite... Oh, yeah, they don't quite overlap. Yeah, but they did meet oh, once. Fire and ice. Once they met, eighteen oh five, Nelson was back, having gone from the West Indies, and is about oh, yeah. to go off to Trafalgar. Wellington has come back from India, waiting mm. his next assignment, and they were both due to see the Secretary of State for War, Castlereagh, and they were in the waiting room together because he was late. Mm. And Wellington, years later, recalled what happened. Oh, brilliant. A gentleman whom, from his likeness to his pictures and the loss of an arm, I immediately recognised as Lord Nelson. He could not know who I was, but he entered at once into conversation with me. If I can call it conversation, for it was almost all on his side and all about himself, and in reality a style so vain and so silly as to surprise and almost disgust me. Yeah, they wouldn't have gone. However... I suppose something that I happened to say may have made him guess that I was somebody, and he went out of the room for a moment. I have no doubt to ask the office keeper who I was, for when he came back he was altogether a different man, both in manner and matter. All that I had thought a charlatan style had vanished, and he talked of the state of this country and of the aspect and probabilities of affairs in the continent, with a good sense and a knowledge of subjects both at home and abroad that surprised me equally and more agreeably than the first part of our interviewer had done. In fact... He talked like an officer and a statesman. The Secretary of State kept us long waiting, and certainly for the last half or three quarters of an hour, I don't know that I ever had a conversation that interested me more. They're one meeting, and they almost leave it thinking, what an awful, ridiculous person. Yeah. But just by chance, they're kept waiting long enough, and they have this and great connection. Nelson, of course, goes off to Defalgar and dies a few weeks yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. Mm. There is also other good battling stuff, which yeah. I'll do very quickly. British Empire, of course, in this period, really yeah. on the up. Napoleonic gains, Tobago, Dutch Guinea, Malta, naval control of the Mediterranean, they retain the good hope of Mauritius. Britain comes out of the Napoleonic Wars as the world power. Yeah, for the next hundred years, that's... Yeah. that's... India, as he said, East India Company's influence spread through the Anglo-Mysore and Anglo-Maratha Wars. 
John Harrison um, invented the marine chronometer. Oh, yes, that's really important. Solves the problem of being able to work out longitude. Mm. And this means they're able to do long-distance travel reliably, accurately, mm. much more safely than before. So they're able to colonise more places. Mm. And they colonise Australia. Uh-huh. First discovered in 1606 by the Dutch, but they didn't colonise it. So in 1770, James Cook discovered the East Coast. Presumably they thought there must have been an East Coast somewhere, and he found it. <laughs> yeah. uh, named it New South Wales. 1778, his botanist, Joseph Banks, suggested that Botany Bay would be suitable for a penal settlement, uh, where they send all yeah. the criminals. And in 1788, a British colony is established. Yeah. They also uh, colonised New Zealand, again discovered by the Dutch, 1642, but instead, 1769 and 70, both islands are claimed by Cook once again. That's a huge bit of territory. Massive, massive. Mm. We also have another war with America but a war which goes a bit better for Britain. This is the War of 1812. Oh, yes, a little known one. Mm. Mm. President Madison uh, declared war on Britain and attacked Canada. Mm. They were hoping that while Britain is sort of, you know, in the midst of the Napoleonic Wars and Napoleon looking like he might conquer Russia, mm. they'd be able to get their, you know, that territory... So they negotiated, yeah. ...for themselves. However, their invasions of Canada failed dramatically, but they win three single ship actions against British ships. That must be encouraging. Huge surprise. Um, in reality, they had much larger ships, and Britain's proper ships are dealing with yeah. the French. Britain sends a better fleet. HMS Shannon defeats USS Chesapeake in 1813. Naval blockades pretty much bankrupt the USA, and there is a peace in 1814, which effectively establishes the status quo and really establishes Canada as a separate British territory. Mm, mm. They shouldn't just use those tactics. Before um, the peace, however, at one point, Britain sends a a team soldiers that land and just march all the way into Washington. Oh, and they burn down the White House, do they? Because they get in, they find this sort of celebratory banquet dinner that Madison had got laid out, but the Americans, seeing the British coming, just had to run out. So the British come in to the White House, ready to burn it down, find this banquet, sit down, eat the banquet, and then burn the White House. <laughs> well, yeah, it's waste. That's... <laughs> we know what they do with tea. Now, George III... Does a little bit of military stuff. Really? Well, not he's not there with his sword held aloft mm. or his rifle or whatever. He did ask to serve as uh, Prince of Wales in the Seven Years' War in 1759, but George II refused. But he took a strong interest in military affairs, controlled promotions, took an actress, uh, active interest in campaigns, uh, particularly in terms of imperial expansion, very much interested him. So his birthday was celebrated in all his different right. colonies, which is something we associate with the British Empire of Victoria, but it starts... Oh, yeah. To George III. He visits the uh, naval fleets in 1773, 78, 81, 89 and 94. Mm. And that goes down quite well. A man, Hans Stanley at Portsmouth in 73, said, I thought he would have been embarrassed and reserved in so large a company, but Charles II could not have been more affable. I don't believe it. More easy or more engaging at his table and would not have had so much discretion and propriety. Well... I love the fact that Charles II is the yardstick. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't believe it. Well, discretion and propriety, probably. Uh, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. But uh, 1803, when Britain was facing invasion, 500,000 spectators came to watch George III inspecting volunteer troops each day in October. Mm. So it's a very powerful sort of symbolic role that he's playing. And apparently his beds were said to have been ready for him to leave and take to the battlefield at a 30 minutes' notice in case the French did invade. Well, and he wanted to be out of the battlefield. Indeed, he wrote to Bishop, We are here in daily expectation that Bonaparte will attempt his threatened invasion. Should his troops effect a landing, I shall certainly put myself at the head of mine and my other armed subjects to repel them. 
So he wanted to take George II's title, not that it was a title at the time. He was willing, you know, if mm. the invasion had come, he wanted to be there to, right. at the troops. Slimy. So he showed willing. Mm. However, mm. on the other hand, yeah. we did a lot of detail last time in the American Revolution, so I won't do too much again except yeah. to say it's a massive defeat. Losing America is a huge loss for yeah. Britain territorially, economically, in terms of global power. Indeed, the Holy Roman Emperor predicted that Britain would become a second-class power for losing America. Yeah. Catherine the Great of Russia said that rather than have granted America independence as my brother monarch King George has done, I would have fired a pistol at my own head. Cool. So they've, you know, the other heads of state are very critical at this. And it's, it was a big mistake in many ways to have forced it at the point of war, because many would argue that it wasn't a war that he could win. Pitt the Elder, in 1777, said, The conquest of English America is an impossibility. You cannot conquer America. If I were an American, while a foreign troop was landed in my country, I would never lay down my arms. Never, never, never. And that's an Englishman saying yes. how much he wouldn't fight. Yeah. would fight the British. Mm. George III does play an active role in all this. He was unsatisfied with the compromises over the stamp tax, rejected other measures for <clears throat> for conciliation in the 1770s, which many people wanted. Mm. Indeed, we had a message on Facebook from Maxine um, Eminger saying that you know a lot of Americans still saw themselves connected to Britain. They didn't that was want a great message. Yeah. yeah, they didn't want to be mm. forced apart, but it got to the point where they just wouldn't couldn't tolerate. Was she saying it was more a problem with the king, not not? Mm. The British. That's how the Americans saw it. And George plays an active role in planning the war. He wanted battles rather than naval blockades, which we saw was so successful later in 1812. Mm. Mm. Um, And he was dismissive of reports that the French were going to enter the war. Right. So he he doesn't play a particularly strong role. Well, he does play a strong role. It's not a particularly good role. A negative one every time. Very negative. We should also introduce a bit of caution and not get too jingoistic about the Napoleonic Wars, because in reality, we would have lost... Battle of Waterloo with Blucher and the Prussians haven't turned up. And what's more, Napoleon is the dominant force here. Trafalgar and uh, Waterloo, as brilliant as they are, are effectively defensive victories. Yeah, I mean, we I think we were much we were much more confident with the uh, Trafalgar one. Hmm. Um, but there's only so much you can do with the navy, isn't there? But, but that's effectively, you know, to make sure that France can't invade Britain. Yeah, but Napoleon is him, mm, yeah. Napoleon is the one that's actually leading everything here it's responding to Napoleon and it's and many times just struggling to remain alive yeah, yeah. and fighting and you could argue that it's his failed invasion of Russia which is the real big turning point so it's just like Hitler isn't in it war. Mm. indeed Wellington uh, acknowledged how close things were at Waterloo he said it was the most desperate business I was ever in I never took so much trouble about any battle and was never so near being beat mm. and of course while we have accepted that George III and future monarchs aren't going to be at the head of their armies, and so we don't say, oh, he didn't fight, therefore he doesn't get any points. It is nevertheless the case that for 1811 to 20, George III was entirely absent from matters of state because of his mental illness. So it's the Prince Regent who is the head of state. It's the Prince Regent that Napoleon writes to for his sort of surrender. Yeah. So George George doesn't even know that the Mm. Battle of Waterloo happened. No. So who do we cut? Do we give the last twenty-year points to to George the Fourth? You'd certainly say that you've got to, at least in some way, limit what you think of George the Third. Yeah, yeah, but it's going to get so tricky. Mm. It's no. just that he's not even aware yeah. that it's happening. It's not yeah. that he's not at the head of the battle. He's just a complete. I mean, he's not. He's completely incapacitated. 
But there's going to be a point where that's going to, that's going to happen more and more. For example, Elizabeth II, which we always use. But she knows it's going on. She does know it's going on, but has no but no, link no at influence. All. Mm. But it would give her the points because it happened under her reign. But it's I mean we've got Amer- losing America against defeating Napoleon. We've got Trafalgar and Waterloo against. Yeah. We didn't lose America, Graham. <laughs> First of all, we beat ourselves, and if anything, we just gave birth to a superpower. Yes. I mean, it was a positive thing. Yes. Um, oh, I don't know. It's it's just, if you were to mention um, the milestone events in mm. British military history, the top five of every list would have Waterloo and Trafalgar. Definitely. I still think it's big. It's really big. It is good. It's one of those where, you know, if we were racing Wellington or Nelson, we'd be giving tens, obviously. Yeah. And both of them are in his reign. Mm. Got to temper it a bit. So that's bringing me to nine, mm-hmm. and I'm taking it to eight for America. But it's still going to be a whopping score. I'm going to give him a seven. I think even though those things are so incredible, Waterloo, Trafalgar, etc., we do have the loss of America, and it's only in hindsight. I mean, it's very Britain is very lucky that it's even capable of fighting yeah. against Napoleon for having lost Russia. Mm. So, you know, that is a big loss, and we shouldn't underestimate what how year bad was Trafalgar that is. Again? Trafalgar's 1805. And when does he go mad? Um, well, second time, eighteen eleven. See, I yeah, I'm happy with eight because at the end of his reign, we're left complete mastery of the seas, mm. which is the building blocks for con- the p- yeah. power in the world in that next century. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to stick with eight. And that's a fifteen for battliness, which is a good start for George. Scandal. Scandal is not so great for George. Mm-hmm. Some rumours of um, early romances before he gets married is a woman, Hannah Lightfoot, who is an attractive Quaker, daughter of a cobbler from Wapping. Uh, George III, some people said, had married and had a child by her in secret. Mm, is there much to that? No. No, right. He also had affections for a beautiful young girl called Sarah Lennox before he got married. Mm-hmm. And he was apparently smitten with her, but uh, Butte, his sort of advisor at the time, disapproved of her advi- oh, ambitious right. family. Mm. But uh, George knows some pretty racy uh, feelings towards her. Really? A uh, little quote here. This is George at his most ardent in oh, 1759. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't deny having often flattered myself with the hopes that one day or other you would consent to my raising her to the throne. Oh, hang on. This is the PG show, <laughs> Come on. Crikey. Well, if that's as, as scandalous as he gets... It is, I'm afraid. Well, actually, we also have, and it's... It's a little, you know, debatable whether we should really count this, but when he is suffering his mental health problems, he does announce um, a lustful passion for the Countess of Pembroke and makes rather lewd advances towards her in public, in view view of everyone else, including his wife. Um, And then, although he does recover before 1811, he still has a tendency to be a bit inappropriate around women and say bad things and (laughs) threaten to take mistresses. Well, I mean, it's... Really bad form to judge him for it because he had an illness. But we've got to do this in the thinking at the time. Yeah, and that would have been scandalous. Mm. However, on the whole, he is as scandal-free as you could yeah. hope to get. He's a moral man. Yeah. Despite his attractions, he is entirely faithful to his wife uh, Charlotte mm. his whole life, and for the most part, they had a happy and loving relationship, calling each other Mister and Mrs King. Oh yeah, sweet That's little lovely. touch. He sought to improve upon the disreputable court of George II, issued royal proclamations for encouraging piety and virtue, forbade dice at court, shunned masquerades, 
He's a man who'd rise early, get up no later than six o'clock, in bed by about eleven o'clock. Mm. Nelson, although his first meeting with him went quite well, and uh, apparently he observed to him quite gaily, You have lost your right arm! <laughs> After he heard about Emma Hamilton, George Thurber was not impressed at all, and he tended to rump Nelson, because he sort of effectively didn't talk to him. Right. So he talked to less distinguished officers all night and not bothered with Nelson at all. Right. Which, Nelson being Nelson, was not something that he appreciated very much at all. Um, So we've got snubbing Britain's greatest military hero. Mm -hmm. He was also a very abstemious man. He wore basic clothes. He ate simply. uh, Very slim compared with Louis XVI or his son. Avoided sugar. Took lemonade rather than wine. Really? Yeah. As a great thing, apparently, after 1798 in the Irish Rebellion, he was given um, as a gift a huge Enniscorthy boar, the really, really massive pig. Yeah. And uh, he was, there was a joke from the Irishman that apparently was that it was so large because it had eaten Protestant clergymen. Oh, right. So apparently, George III had it sold, and thereafter, for a number of years, there was a decline in the sale of Irish bacon. Really? Because he was worried that they'd eaten Protestant no clergymen. <laughs> We even have the Royal Marriages Act in 1772, because his family, he wanted his family to get along, unlike mm. previous generations, all the Hanoverians always hate each other, but not George said he wants them all to get along, so they're going to have a moral home life, planned education. Unfortunately, the future George IV hated his preaching interfering father, so he gambled, incurs debts, takes mistresses, friendships with radical Whigs like Fox, who George III really, really hates. Mm. His daughters complain about having to live pretty much in a nunnery. Only two of them are married. Um, two of them are married in their 40s. Mm. When they are 40, they're oh, allowed really? to marry. Another two don't get to marry at all, but there's a lot of shenanigans going on behind closed doors. Mm. His brothers, Cumberland, Duke of Cumberland, was exposed as an adulterer in 1770. Duke of Gloucester revealed he'd secretly married an illegitimate countess. George was appalled, banished them both from court for their scandalous behaviour and Royal. introduces the Royal Marriages Act so that royal family members are forbidden from marrying without sovereign's consent, or else it's invalid. So he is actively trying to stamp out scandal. Yeah, this is really poor. Oh, really good, from his point of view. But, yes. Um, it's not good. It's not good at all. He's not a man of scandal. I don't think there many. No, I don't think he deserves any. I think it would be really quite off if we were to give him some just because he had mental health problems. <laughs> George is not a scandalous man, he's a moral man. Yeah. And that is a zero for scandal. Subjectivity. Rather more to talk about here. Right. First of all, he's British. Well, oh, yes, he is then for that. Properly British. He is the first Hanoverian king who's actually born in England and speaks English with an English accent. Right. And he's got no particular interest in Hanover, never goes there for his whole life. He mm. never visits Hanover. Mm. His accession speech... He says, born and educated in this country, I glory in the name of Britain, and the peculiar happiness of my life will ever consist in promoting the welfare of a people whose loyalty and warm affection to me I consider as the greatest and most permanent security of my throne. As we've said, he's a moral man, very conscientious of duty, sought to improve the character of court, gave apparently about £1 million a year to charity from an annual sort of income of about £5.7 million. Giving a lot to charity. He's a genuinely decent person, which you can't really say of the other Hanoverians. Yeah, I'm really glad we didn't give him anything for scandal. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be mortified. Yeah. And he was known at the time as Farmer George. Oh, yes. Yeah. Very interested in agricultural developments, crop rotation, stock breeding. He actually wrote articles to uh, agricultural magazines under the name of Ralph Robinson. No way. Yeah. Do they still exist? 
I don't think so, yes. Oh, that's amazing. He created a model farm for his uh, sons to work on, much to their resentment. Yeah, they burned it down and <laughs> they just <laughs> made potato vodka. It's a very accessible man. He lived simply, without ceremony. Regularly would have conversation with ordinary folk that he encountered on his walks. Mm. He'd sometimes pop into people and his stakes for a chat. No. So he's kind of like a country squire, this sort of very gentle, amiable man wandering that's around. so bizarre. And uh, he used to, and it's a lovely thing, his habits, he used to end a lot of his sentences with what, what. Yes, that, that's right. I remember that from the film. So he'd, uh, it would help partly cover his shyness, which he had as a young man, but also sort of put his audience at ease and encourage them yeah, to yeah. engage in conversation. So an example, when um, talking about Shakespeare one time, he said, sad stuff, only mum must not say so, what, what? <laughs> and he made a joke. No, a real one. A real one. He was speaking to a woman called Hannah Forty, who was the wife of a spa pumper. Uh, no joke there. And he said to her, Miss Forty, you and your husband together make 80. <laughs> That's a joke. It is That's a, a joke. real joke. <laughs> yes. It's got a punchline. Did they laugh? Was any record of the laugh? Apparently yeah, the man that recorded the joke apparently wasn't very impressed about it. He wrote ha-ha afterwards. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's good. Well done. Well done, George. Mm. And he's a very popular man. Apart from uh, the 1760s, when he had all those ministries that were failing, yeah. and the loss of America, he's generally very, very popular. The reduced role of the monarchy, particularly once Pitt comes in, means that he's just sort of got a domestic mm. role, which is very much what we associate with the monarchy now, a family yeah, a domestic yeah, role. George yeah. III is really the first one that really does this. Because that's their entire role almost these days, to be the first family. Yeah. So it's a new form of monarchy that he starts off, and it makes mm. him very popular. When he's suffering from his problems in 1788 to 89, the first time it comes along, there's panic on the stock exchange and people worried that he might die. Mm. And there's public rejoicing when he recovers. Mm. And if you recall, he goes off to Weymouth uh, to recuperate, which he popularises as a seaside resort he visits it so often. And a band came along to play God Save the King and actually waded into the sea Brilliant. all along just to play it. Oh, I'd love to see that. And... <laughs> Sorry. That's <laughs> such a funny... Imagining the band. He was probably going for a swim to escape that. That's the one song that follows him everywhere. It'd be like a sort of like Monty Python and the Holy Grail with Robin's Minstrels that just yeah, following just around Sound ca- slightly counterintuitive, but assassination attempts also reveal his popularity. Because people love the way that he reacts to them. Yeah. So in uh, 1786, a woman, Margaret Nicholson, lunges at him with a knife. Thankfully, it glances off his coat and doesn't injure him. But he cries out straight away, The poor creature is mad. Do not hurt her. She has not hurt me. Oh, Gentle. forgiving. And in 1800, a man, James Hadfield, fired two shots at George III um, in his box at Drury Lane Theatre. Mm. And... Um, Man at the theatre, Michael Kerry, observed, the king, on hearing the report of the pistol, retired a pace or two, stopped and stood firmly in for an instant, then came forward to the very front of the box, put his opera glass to his eye and looked around the house without the smallest appearance of alarm or discomposure. To try and find the culprit? Yeah, just having a little look with his glasses. Who's that near these pops at me? What, what? <laughs> and then insisted that the show continued. Can and I apparently know? fell asleep. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Having had someone try to shoot what him. What is it with theatres as assassination venues in this mm. century? Indeed. Right. He's also important in terms of resisting revolution in Britain, because there's a real fear that the French Revolution will spread to Britain. Mm. And George III is this image of stability, and his popularity, his domesticity, in comparison to the excesses of the Bourbon court of Louis mm. XVI, Marie Antoinette, arguably very important in making sure that the same thing doesn't happen yeah, you just you think if maybe if George the First were there, it might have been a mm, or George the Fourth. George the Fourth certainly. Yeah. yeah, 
And indeed, in 1795, one found a small ball of lead or marble shot through the glass of his carriage. And George III said to his companion, Sit still, my lord, we must not betray fear, whatever happens. Yeah, wow, what a character. What, what? What, what, yeah. <laughs> and England does re- avoid revolution. So someone, it was a, that was another, another attempt. Oh yeah, there are lots yeah. and lots of attempts. But actually, for many of the monarchs in this period, lots of assassination right. attempts. By revolutionaries. Revolutionaries, a lot of the time, just mad people. Right. Okay. As as is now. Mm. It's the same thing. It's not a new invention. No. Mm. By any means. We also, of course, have the Industrial Revolution. Yes. Huge advance for Britain and the world. But Britain leads it. James Watt. Massive improvements to the Newcomen steam engine allows a huge range of industry, not just pumping water, but doing lots of other things. So in terms of coal mines, you can lift trucks with lots of coal, move that around much more easily, blow air into hot furnaces for iron, grinding clay for pottery. He also has an SI unit named after him, of course, the Watt. Oh, of course, yeah, the Watt. Named after him. I'd love it if they met. What? 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 (laughs) What? 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 (laughs) George Stevenson as well, very important, used steam to power trains. Yeah. So he gets steam powered trains for the first time. His first one was called Blucher. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. He also invented um, a form of a minor safety lamp. But there was controversy about it because the man Humphrey Davy, who was credited with inventing it, and believes that Stevenson had stolen his idea. Now, what is the safety lamp, minor safety lamp? The one this is a way that you can have a light... On your hat. On your hat, but it doesn't explode with the gases. Right. Which did used to happen mm. and wasn't very safe. No. So now they invented one which didn't explode. That sounds a lot safer. Much safer. Yeah. Well uh, but in the northeast where he was from, they used Stevenson's one. Hey, look at me late. Oh, that's not an accent, sorry. But arguably, he is potentially the origin for the term Geordie, people from the northeast. George Stevenson. Geordie. That's brilliant. That's mm. a great fact. Yeah. We also have textile industries, cotton spinning developed using Arkwright's water frame, Hargreaves' spinning jenny, Crompton's spinning mule, so lots of development mm. there. Um, iron, furnishing of iron, coke applied to all stages of smelting, replaces charcoal. So in 1773 we get the world's first cast iron bridge constructed over the River Severn at Colebrookdale. Mm. So massive advances in being able to use iron quickly. Canals start up in this period. We have a waterway network because it's a faster way of transporting goods. Because a horse can move a canal boat along water much quicker than it could drag a carriage yeah, on a road. Land, yeah. The economy, thanks to this, expands massively, which is a huge importance to winning the Napoleonic Wars, because that's how Britain is able to fund it. And life expectancy improves as well. This is fantastic score, really, isn't it? It's Malthus, it was a man who thought that there was a limited sustainable population. You get to a certain point and then war, poverty, disease would just kill people off. That still prevails, that theory. 1350s, 1650s, population had got up to 6 million, but it then declined. Got to 6 million? Mm. Crikey. Then declined. 1760 to 1820, however, it increased from 6 million to 9 million. George III does do some stuff which we can give him credit for. Yes. Cultural patronage. In terms of literature, he fi- uh, founded a royal bindery at Queen's House in 1770. So, you know, binding on books and the oh, covers, right. yeah. things like this. He took a great interest in it himself and got a bit involved in typography and book design. Mm. He was also potentially the world's greatest ever book collector. He owned yeah. about 65,000 volumes. Blimey. Including Canterbury Tales and first editions of Paradise Lost and Shakespeare, which he ultimately donated his royal library to the country. And they still exist? All they still exist, yeah, oh. thanks to George. 
music like his predecessors, he loves Handel. Oh, blimey. Literally changed the record. (laughs) (laughs) As a young, very young man, he met him, and Handel said, while that boy lives, my music will never want a protector. Mm. Indeed, after he died, then George III uh, presided over 100th anniversary celebrations of Handel's birth. Right. They still bang on about Handel, yeah. but we have other people emerging as well. Okay. In 1764, an eight-year-old prodigy comes to play before George and Charlotte, Mozart. Aha. Uh-huh. Came before them, played some pieces, uh, apparently tricky pieces by Handel and Bach and other you people. You think you're good. Try this Handel piece. <laughs> and, he tra- and he was doing this on site. He'd never seen it before, mm. and he was played it perfectly. Mm. It was eight years old. Yeah. Mozart's amazing. a phenomenon. And he also actually had an um, Opus 3 collection of works by Mozart was dedicated to Charlotte, George oh, III's right. wife. Right. And George III himself, he played flute, harpsichord, and pianoforte. So, you know, he's a musical man. Yeah, yeah. Likes yeah. his music. Did he uh, write anything? I fear not. Uh. He also loves his astronomy, and indeed he funds a 40-foot telescope for the astronomer Herschel, who comes over from Hanover. Mm. And this at the time was the largest telescope ever built. And Herschel discovers the planet Uranus. Really? And initially he thought it was a comet, and he actually named it after George. Uranus? Well, but when it became known that it was actually a planet... Oh, he changed the name. It had to be a Roman god. They've got the technology to see that far in the... Thanks to George... You know, funding him, giving him his telescopes. Blimey. That's, that's, this is really good. I mean, I can't see how we're going to get a better one. George also founds uh, the Royal Academy of Arts in 1768. Josiah Wedgwood, the famous mm. uh, pottery man, was uh, styled Potter to Her Majesty. George III was very interested in the process, invited him to Windsor to have a chat about it. He loves all this sort of stuff. Charlotte, Queen Charlotte, ensured that Kew was stocked with new exotic plants. Yeah. important in the Kew Gardens. Brilliant. And, of course, we have in this period Capability Brown, the landscape designer. Uh-huh. Anyone that's been to a stately home and seen mm. the magnificent grounds, which look like they're these sort of timeless rolling mm. fields, actually, they're specifically designed by Capability Brown to look natural, to look like that, but they are actually designed. Yeah, they're all sca- uh, landscaped. Mm. Which I always thought... I mean, they are amazing when you mm. see them. But how did he get his reputation... So, because everyone must have got, oh, he's the best. Because he was. He was a, yeah. he was a rock star of the time. He was <laughs> designing these gardens all over the place. But not once in his life would, he, would anyone have ever seen one of his, the results. Exactly, because it takes years and years for everything to grow. So it must have been like the Emperor's New Clothes initially. Yeah. And there's other great cultural stuff going on as well, outside of George's own patronage. 1771, the pub- first publication in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm. 1783, Robert Burns publishes his first volume of poetry. The Great Scottish Poet. Mm. 1798, Wordsworth and Coleridge, the Lyrical Ballads, this new romantic well, the late, late poetry, poetry, the Lake yeah, Poets. Yeah. 1813, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which one of the defining yeah, sort of works like in English literature, still one of the most popularly mm. read books. Famous for pretty much never mentioning the Napoleonic Wars. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's an escape. And 1818, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Cool. And we have the Scottish Enlightenment. In this period, it's in Scotland where a lot of the great stuff's going on. Adam Smith in 1776 writes The Wealth of Nations. Oh, that, yeah. Capitalist uh, track where he said the invisible hand of mutual selfishness provides mm. the sort of self regulation in the markets. He's now on our £50 notes. Not that I've ever seen a £50 note. <laughs> but he's there. Yeah. Uh, Joseph Black, the first man to isolate carbon dioxide. Adam Ferguson, pretty much the founder of sociology. David Hume is a major philosopher and historian. Robert Burns, we've mentioned. Walter Scott, great Scottish novelist. James Watt, Scottish. Yeah. 
As Voltaire, our old friend, yeah. said, we look to Scotland for our idea of civilization. <laughs> I say it's true today. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Another thing we might just throw in at this point is that uh, in 1807 we have the abolition of the slave trade. That's jolly good. Jolly good stuff. 1780s, the Quakers started an anti-slavery campaign. 1783, the first petition yeah. they put forward. France are the first to abolish it in 1794, but Napoleon brings it back. What? In 1802. I had no idea of such a matter. It's important for their economy and things like that. Mm. He is a dictator. He is. They do. They're nasty. Mm. Mm-hmm. Denmark is the first country that does it permanently from 1803, so thumbs up to Denmark. Mm. But in Britain, William Wilberforce is the leading man. Yeah. MP for Yorkshire, persuaded by another very important man who gets forgotten, Tem- Thomas Clarkson, to get involved. And then his friend William Pitt says he should really lead this campaign in Parliament. Mm. And he does. 1789, Wilberforce makes his first speech about it in the Commons. But the vote gets delayed. And it's tricky going. 1792, a bill is defeated, 163 votes to 88. Because after the French Revolution, the climate gets much more conservative and any of this Mm. radical nonsense Mm. people aren't too happy about. 1792, Wilberforce, Pitt and Fox, all on the same side, debated for... The abolition, but yeah. it still got voted down. What? But finally, 1806 election returned abolitionists. Lord Grenville won the vote first in the Lords by a large margin, and it passed the Commons 283 votes to 16. Who were those 16? <laughs> I don't know. Fine, fine, upstanding <laughs> men. Slave owners, but Slave owners. It doesn't actually abolish slavery as such, just the slave trade. Right. So you can keep your slaves, but you can't sell any more. Well, I mean, it's a hell of a leap forward. And finally, perhaps the greatest achievement of the entire reign. John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, invents the sandwich. Ten points. It's a ten-pointer. He was friends with James Cook, so Hawaii was originally named the Sandwich Islands <laughs> after him. He was a regular gambler, and he, lo- he d- wouldn't leave to go and have dinner, so he stayed at the table, which meant that he was missing his dinner. So yeah. he used to get his servants to bring him... Slices of meat between two slices of bread. So that a lot of very, very good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I can't see it not being ten. Let's have the arguments against. Okay. He's really more English than he is British. He's the least travelled monarch since Edward VI. Really? He never visits Wales, Scotland, Ireland or the North. (laughs) But this is what we expect of our ability. Weymouth is about as far as he ever goes. From London. They're all home counties, aren't they? So yeah. Apart from Prince of Wales. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, not quite as uh, great in British as we said. Ireland doesn't have a particularly good time of it in this period. Irish Rebellion in 1798, about 10,000 killed in the uprisings. Um, there we had the Act of Union in 1800, mm. where Pitt thought we can't have the Protestant ascendancy anymore, where, you know, Protestant minorities got all the rights and property and yeah. whatnot. So we have Ireland, part of the United Kingdom now, and try to reconcile them to us, so yeah. we're all together. He realises that for this to work, you need Catholic emancipation, because Catholics can't um, sit in Parliament, yeah. they've got lots of legal restrictions on what they're allowed to do, so he thinks, get rid of this, level playing field, that will bring Ireland on board. Yeah. Just like Scotland, 1707 was such a success, we'll do it with Ireland as well. Yeah. But George III refuses Catholic emancipation. Oh, George. And Pitt resigns. Oh, no, so that's his great ally. Great ally. It's Grenville, um, who's another man who later resigned over this, um, 
The reasons for George doing this, uh, Grenville said, were an invincible repugnance in the king's mind, grounded in a mistaken but principled adherence to what he conceived to be the sense of his coronation oath. Mm. So George thought, I take an oath to protect the Church of England, I can't therefore pass a law which lets Catholics off the hook. Yeah. Even though he gets legal opinion that says, you know what, you probably could. You definitely could. Massive lost opportunity to reconcile Ireland to Britain Mm, mm. and to shore up that. That's a very damaging legacy. Pitt had been his Prime Minister for about 20 years, serving him loyally. It's the Napoleonic Wars are ongoing. Mm. And George puts his foot down and says, no, no rights for Catholics. Oh, it was a perfect ten. That's annoying. America would not be thinking a ten for subjectivity. George III. As he said, he took an active interest. Early on, he was telling Parliament action was required. Remember the phrase that blows must decide Mm. the outcome. Unsatisfied with compromises, and indeed he's the last to accept the reality that the war is over. Mm. He told Parliament in 1775, it was necessary to put a speedy end to these disorders by the most decisive exertions. Mm. So you can see here a man who, you know, he wants to force, by force, America to comply. He wants to stamp out the rebellion. It just doesn't, it doesn't match with this friendly farmer. And America very much then and now see him as a sort of bogeyman mm. figure. The Declaration of Independence 1776 just has a mass complaint about all the ills that George III has done against enough. them. For example, the history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of unremitting injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object of the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. Uh, I mean, it was, they sound pretty wound up. And he ends up, of course, losing this massive, massive territory, which isn't great for Britain. No. No. In defence of George and his record in America... Really, it's because of all these weak ministries who a lot of the time are doing things that George isn't always that aware of. Mm. It's much easier to pin the blame on one man who's there throughout than it is on these shifting ministries that you can't really pin down. So a lot of things George gets criticised for he probably wasn't really responsible for or aware of. He was the figurehead of the... He was the figurehead. And indeed, after the war, George III, when he met John Adams, who at that point was British uh, ambassador to Britain, said, I will be very free with you. I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I've always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. What, uh, George said that? Yes, after it's all finished. And John Adams is ambassador to mm. Britain. He sort of, yeah. And John Adams, indeed, says, The king is, I really think, the most accomplished courtier in his dominions, with all the affability of Charles II. Yay! This is why I like him. He has all the domestic virtues and regularity of Charles I. Um, That's amazing that John Adams, first of all, met George III. Yeah. And they got on. I I don't even necessarily got on hugely, but he thought, actually, he's all right. Yeah. Yeah, once you get to know him, he's mad. That is amazing. Mm. Other bad things, of course, mm. domestic politics. As you said, the 1760s, his desire to be a patriot king, as we said, it means that the Whigs think, hang on, you're suddenly trying to reverse all the good work we did in 1688, making Parliament strong. You're trying to roll it all back. Yeah. You're a monster. You're a tyrant. Yeah, yeah. 1760s, we have all those weak, short-lived governments, which largely, because of George's interventions, undermined, don't have that power. 
Pitt the Younger, of course, came to power when George kicked out the Fox-Portland coalition, put in this 24-year-old with no power base. Mm. Successive votes that go against Pitt, including a motion of no confidence. Oh, that's just so disheartening. And then he funded the election campaign, yeah. which, of course, ultimately got him uh, victory. So that's not the most constitutional, proper... No. Monarchy. No, no, fine. There's a lot of attempts at reform in this period, and this is not something which George III is keen on at all. No. First of all, in the 1760s, there's a man called Wilkes. Initially, he's arrested for libel because his magazine, North Britain, um, launches these sort of scathing attacks on Butte and George III. So George III issues his arrest warrant. He can do that? Locks him up in the Tower of London. Wow. He's released due to being an MP. He's got parliamentary privilege. Yeah. So he can't actually do that. He goes off into exile, but comes back, 1768, stands in election, wins, yeah. gets put back in prison again, huh? riots outside um, from people who want him released, lead to seven people being killed by King's soldiers. Mm. And then Wilkes is expelled, re-elected, expelled, to and fro until 1774. He's finally allowed back in permanently. But this is not showing George III as a friend of democracy and reform. Not at all. In the 1780s, 90s, Pitt failed in his attempt to remove the rotten boroughs, where yeah. you'd have sort of an MP being elected pretty much by himself. Yeah. 1794, with all the fear of revolution and whatnot going on, habeas corpus was suspended. Ooh, hang on. Meaning you could just arrest anyone that you know, is, without that's trial a or evidence or anything. There's hysteria against reformist societies, like the London Corresponding Society. Treason trials against radicals. I mean, it's such an age of... Um hurly-burly, you're getting all these amazing inventions and reform all over mm. the place. And to be fair, you know, the context of the French Revolution, it's, it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's echoes of 1940 again. Mm. I think in, Even terrorism now, to some extent, some of the similar arguments are still, you know, being used in terms of liberties against yeah, security. Yeah, yeah, But we've never gone as far as suspending Javier's corpus. No, that's, that's quite amazing. a big step. <laughs> yeah. Um, and George just generally doesn't like reform, regardless of mm-hmm. safety. His man, Lord Eldon, when he became Chancellor, requested to George that he doesn't have to wear a wig when he's not on duty. And George said, I will have no innovations in my time. Novelties seldom succeed in the transaction of public business and ought to be reprobated unless the old mode has been proved faulty. I can't understand it. He's, he seems so... Two different characters. <laughs> Farmer George, who likes these new... You know, he's he likes these sort of technological things. Yeah. But protocol and things like this, no. Mm-hmm. The old way. And, you know, we've got a dubious legacy in many areas. We've got the transportation of uh, criminals for life to Australia. Mm, yeah. Um, the impact on Aborigines, of course, and the... Oh, it's shocking, actually. It's such um, a sad story. And George actually opposed the abolition of the slave trade. It would have happened much earlier if uh, George had supported oh. it. So he wasn't actually oh. all that keen on it. But it happened under him. But it ultimately did. He did sign yes. it off eventually. He didn't... Draw a line in I the sand, like he did with the Catholic emancipation. Yeah, which is pretty, pretty bad. Also, not everybody loves the Industrial Revolution. Mm. Luddites, um, these people, many craft workers, of course, lose their jobs because we've got low-skilled labour or machines that are doing it instead. There is this legendary figure, Ned Ludd, who apparently destroyed mm. machines. So, starting in Nottingham, there are these groups that were just going around destroying machinery. Mm. Clashing with uh, the military, machine-breaking was made a capital offence. I suppose, I mean, they're so vital to the economy. Mm. But it's new, isn't it? It's uh, it's the first time you can have a proper, you know, a, a, a huge in, um, industrialisation. Mm. You're going to get that comparison. Like in the 30s, you, Metropolis is always seen as yeah. quite a scary thing. Mm. 
It waxes and wanes, you know. Yeah. There's still only nine million people in the country. Yeah, so just find a field. Get a grip. Yeah. So there's some amazing stuff in there. Um, but there's some not very nice at all things as well. Like so much of George, there's so much period yeah. that we're talking about that I, to be honest, but it's so good. But as I said, it's a, it's a he's a, a natural conservative. Um, yes. So he is perhaps. He's he's on the bicycle putting his heels down, but it's still moving along. Yeah. Um, and it does move at a pace. It was going downhill. Hmm. Um, and I think... I can't extend this metaphor any further. <laughs> but the uh, things it passes are very good. I don't hmm. know. The um, All of that, that huge long list of the... Um, of the successes in the time... The culture, the Industrial Revolution... Yeah, the... Um, his own affability. Which, I mean, it, it, you know, always wins me over. <laughs> you do like an affable child. <laughs> I do. A good egg. Yeah. yeah well, he is. I, I, think, I think if you met him, you'd say, oh, he's a really nice go- guy, a good egg. And someone would say, you know, what about slavery? He goes, yeah, but, you know, he's a <laughs> nice bloke. Um, but I can't excuse him. I just can't... I can't... I can't I can't not give him a huge score. I'm just, I think so much of what I enjoy today mm. um, was down to this period mm. of history. Although, again, of course, the last ten years, the mm. Regency yeah. Yeah. isn't him. No. And, well, and I'll definitely give credit to Regency period stuff that is a definite yeah. thing in itself to George IV. But it's big, it's big, and I'm going to go... Mm. So, eight... Uh, I'm going to go seven again, so we've got another 15, as with battliness. Mm. As you said, it's it's lots of great stuff, but there is the other side, and you've got to have that balance. But overall, it's a, it would have been a scary time. The 1780s and 90s would have been a very scary period, and the 1800s for Britain because of France, but yeah. it's not his fault, and yeah. ultimately his stability helps to... Yeah, and the fact that it was a scary time, but he was, he was present and doing things in public. And his role was important in terms of... Mm. people not wanting to get rid of their monarchy. Yeah, and creating some stability. So that is 15 for subjectivity. Good score. Longevity. Well, this obviously is big. 1760 to 1820. 59.25 years. Whoa, we this just, is missed the, just missed the Diamond Jubilee. This is the longest reign we've had up to this point in Rex Factor. Will it get beaten? Will it get beaten? <laughs> Who knows? Um, it's the third longest reign ever behind Victoria and... Course, yeah. Elizabeth II. So we type that into our calculator. That gives him eighteen point six four mm. for longevity, which is very good. Jolly good. Dynasty, not the program. Again, this is big. Eleven Whoa. surviving children. Wow. And indeed, um, one of his sons, the Duke of Kent, who was looking after him after his wife had died a couple of years earlier, died just two days before George III. Oh, but he was mad, so he wouldn't be told. Oh, he wouldn't know about it at all. Oh, but sad. if he died, if George had died a couple of days earlier... I'd be 12, died, I see, yeah. And he would have equaled the record of Edward the Elder. Really? Of 12. Instead, he gets this nevertheless whopping 11, which gives him a score for Patiometer. dynasty of 18.37. Really good. Uh, when we add all of that up, George III gets a total score of 67.01, Ooh. which is the third highest score Ooh. ever. So it's ahead of Edward IV, head of Edward III, and Henry I, Cromwell, Henry VIII. He's only behind Henry II yes. and Edward I. Yes. Oh, he's great. He's brilliant. I really like him. So that is a stunning score for George III, but 
Does he have that certain something, that element of greatness, that star quality and lasting legacy which we call... Rex Factor! I've just realised how um, how much will have angered a lot of our American fans. Yes. I just, just before we did that, I said, I really like him. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, I hope we might have not changed their minds, but given a different perspective on him. I'm, I think you know where I am with this. I mean, he's got so much. We've got, at the time, it's a record-breaking reign. Mm. His stability, yeah. so important in resisting revolution. The Napoleonic Wars, the British Empire... So much defining stuff happens in the Industrial Revolution, the culture, so much big So much what makes stuff great and what makes it what made it great in the period and what makes it what it is today happened then. Exactly. The sandwich. The sandwich. I mean <laughs> can would that not just tip the balance in anyone's books? I mean The problem is if anyone knows anything about Digital Third is that he lost America mm. and that he was mad. But this is what we're going to do. We're changing this perspective. I changed perspective. Though we've got to remember again, 1811 to 20, he's completely incapacitated. Mm. So that, you know, it's the last 10 years that he gets from that longevity score. You know, he's not really in control. No, no. Um, he does lose America. George does have a limited role. And a lot of the time when he does get stuck in... He messes it all he messes up. up. So the 1760s politics, of course, he messes all that. When he got involved in America, he got involved and he messes it up. So, you know, he's... He's far more successful when he sits back and just is the figurehead of this first family, the royal family that we mm. started to get an idea of, yeah. um, which in itself is really important. So he's the first head of the royal family as yes. an idea. Mm. I think subjectivity stuff on its own is, it just improves the lives so much. Mm. And he, at a really important time, bound everyone together. Mm. Yes. He's got it. You're saying yes, yes. to Rex for George III. I'm going to, for the first time ever, give a split. Oh decision. no! I'm going to say no to George. Oh no! <laughs> this is oh the first time ever, and it's after all the, the the two episodes. I think a lot of his thing is really just hanging along for a long time, mm. and stuff gets done. Being around, being around, and that's where particularly when we point out the fact that for the last ten years he's not really there at all. Mm. It's just that another thing. He then gets the... We then have mentioned things like Jane Austen. Yeah. Which was published when he wasn't really there. Yeah. We've, give, we've got Waterloo when he wasn't really there. I know what you mean. You mean you might as well give the Rex Factor to a grandfather clock because it was there when Jane Austen <laughs> was around. If you think about Edward I, Henry VIII, Henry II, William the Conqueror, Elizabeth, mm. Charles II, yes. all these sorts of people, you think, does he really stack up to them? You're right, if there were a party with all those people present, Mm. he would feel a bit insecure. I I know I'm just swayed because I imagine I'd really like (laughs) him. Um, So I think he he does a much better job than he gets credit for. He definitely does that. Mm. I don't think he's quite got that star quality enough. I like the fact that he's a good, affable chap, but I think that's all he is. Charles II had something more than just being a good egg. He had that. Mm, You're right. That yeah, I can something. see what you mean. You're right. Um, yeah. So if he he was great and was what needed and we had that Rex mm. factor at the time, um, binding the nation together when there was fear of Napoleonic mm. invasion. If it, if if when he did do that binding together and reviewing the troops when thousand people turned up, mm. if he'd have given a speech like uh, um, Elizabeth mm. 
uh, saying I'm a weak and feeble woman yeah. and be famous for it. That would have been, something... certainly would have been famous if he said that. Well, yeah, we certainly would, yeah. <laughs> um, it, was, it was in the late, last ten years. Um, <laughs> if he had given a speech or something that he's remembered for, he's just, it just that something's missing. Mm. And as it is, he's famous for thinking a tree's the Russian emperor. Mm. Well, that's a shame. We both First agree. ever split vote. Uh, do let us know. Twitter, yeah. Facebook, email... What you think? I know I'm going to be Should you have got it? Should you not have got it? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Chad. <laughs> anyway, next time it will be George the Fourth, the Prince Regent. Yes, look forward to it.